Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Stuttering Foundation podcast. This is your host, Sarah McIntyre, recording from Philadelphia, and I am welcome today with my honorary co-host, Dr. Ellen Kelly. Ha ha. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Sarah. It's great to see you. I can't believe that we're getting close to the end of another year. I know. So for those of you who might be new listeners to the podcast, Dr. Ellen Kelly and I have a few episodes each season where we talk through different clinical questions or topics or just hit record and maybe a conversation that we would usually have together as as people who who tend to meet and chat about all things stuttering. And so we're welcoming you all into our conversations and we are always interested and welcome any specific clinical questions or topics that you all would like to hear us talk through. So we'll we'll be gathering some of those starting to prepare for season six, which I can't believe will will be beginning in January. So I will plug that again at the end and I'll also put my information in the description. Okay, so for today's topic, we are going to be talking about talking with with parents uh, of y- y- young children who are just beginning to stutter. And I think for this topic, Ellen, I'm going to pitch it over to you. If you don't mind introducing a little bit about what we're going to talk about and also about your position within Stuttering Foundation, why this re- really felt like an important topic to spend some time chatting about. Sounds good, Sarah. So my position at the Stuttering Foundation, probably about half of what I do is provide consultation to anyone who reaches out to the Stuttering Foundation with questions about stuttering. It can be about themselves or their employees or their children. And oftentimes, parents reach out, and especially parents of young children who stutter, because when stuttering starts, it tends to be quite surprising, alarming, and worrisome for parents who really feel like, what is this? What do we do? And they reach out with a lot of questions and wanting information and understanding, and especially to know what to do to help their children. Would you be able to, Ellen, and I guess we can kind of perspective shift during this episode. So both take the positioning or framework of maybe what a parent might be feeling or thinking or asking, and then also from a clinician standpoint of how what we might be thinking about in terms of eliciting or guiding or supporting a little bit of content or information giving. I wonder if we could take the perspective of the parent first and talk through and brainstorm together what maybe common questions that they come to you with or concerns or how how that initial reach out usually begins. Great question. So usually parents are wondering, is this normal? And always, will it last? And how do you know whether my child will continue to stutter or not? And they also want to share about their child and the concerns that they have. And that can be everything from what they think might have caused it or what they've read or seen on the internet or what other people have told them. Probably classic is the input from the pediatrician or family physician where they might have been told, oh, lots of kids do this. He or she will grow out of it. And some parents say, 
okay, but they still have questions and they're not sure that answers it. One of the reasons for that is sometimes when parents take the child to the pediatrician, how many children do a whole lot of talking to their pediatrician? Maybe the little ones who are super outgoing or the pediatrician's a family friend or someone they know. But quite often in that office setting, the child's not going to just open up and do a lot of talking. So the stuttering may not be apparent at all. And sometimes related to that, one of the worries parents have is that the pediatrician didn't hear it, didn't see it, and doesn't necessarily seem to be trusting the parent report. And we know that's also a factor just by the very nature of stuttering and its variability. When parents actually come into the clinic and we're doing an assessment, we may not hear or see or the stuttering at all or the level of stuttering that the parents are reporting. And then they'll say, well, you probably think I'm crazy, but it was there. And then we say, that's the nature of stuttering. And that's what I would expect. That's why your observations as the parent, as the expert on the child, knowing your child best and having heard and seen the changes in the stuttering are the person I want to learn from. So take me through it from when you first noticed it and what was it like and how was the child reacting to it and how did you respond to it and what questions did you have? And oftentimes you kind of open it up initially for that story. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what brought you to reach out to me. And you listen to that. And then before you start answering those questions or filling in information on things like risk factors and other things, you ask for more information so that you get as clear an idea as you can of what it's like, but also to help the parent say the story out loud and fill in the pieces and clarified in their own minds. But we also know that when we do that, when we allow that, the anxiety, the worry already starts to come down. And already we've started the therapeutic process. And of course, the building of that therapeutic relationship. Wow, you covered so many great things there. And in terms of parents, what they have queued up ready to unload when there may be first meeting with a clinician or you and your consultation uh, uh, opportunities where their story and then everything that they've read or tried to learn or cram in and then all of their worries. I think that understanding that they might have shared their concerns already with someone that might have not fully understood stuttering from the the in-depth lens that that maybe someone who who works in stuttering would. So usually a pediatrician, maybe someone at preschool, maybe a relative or a family friend who might ha- ha- have sort of dove in and made suggestions of maybe you should reach out to someone. And then that of course brings up a lot of worries for parents too in, oh, wow, maybe this is a thing or something to be really worried about. So you have parents walking into or maybe not in person these days, maybe on the phone or you know through... Through, through through video call that they have a need for someone to listen who understands a need to also sort through everything that they ha- have tried to gather since and then either information and or just a comforting presence and trust in the professional to dial back that worry dial 
And so when as clinicians, we know that there's all of those things possibly swimming in in parents' minds. And, and if, 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 if it's a two-parent or caregiver household, they might have different set of opinions or worries or at, at varying degrees, which is also interesting to start to balance. But in, in then perspective shifting to the clinician, you've already shared what, what is so key at that beginning, that f- first question or prompt that we might share. Tell me more about what, what, what brought you here today or what made you reach out. Would you mind, Ellen, sharing a little bit about how you create space? And I, I think that it, it, it's making me think about our recent episode on what will be a counseling series, ongoing promise, about it's all about the listening. <laughs> but could you now perspective shift, shift into your expert counseling brain and give us some insight into what you're thinking and considering? Yes, absolutely. And I can use a recent consultation to kind of guide that conversation. There was a mom who reached out very, very savvy. She had read lots. She had surfed the internet. And and it was interesting to hear her talk about what she had learned. And yet, what questions remained. In addition to that, she started out the conversation when I asked that open-ended question. So what led you to reach out to the Suttering Foundation? How can I be helpful to you? So she started by saying, well, my child used to have difficulties being understood, saying his speech sounds, but that's better now. And he's stuttering. And really, that's the only thing that I'm concerned about said, okay. So I started to explore and ask more questions to tell me more about the stuttering when you first noticed it, how it's changed over time, and whatever else you think would be important to share. And then you're always tossing it back over and waiting and listening. And then anything that might mean different things, not to immediately interpret it, but to ask for a little bit more. Well, in the course of that conversation, and this I think also relates to as I was brand new to her, she had never met me, we were on a video call, and all I had ever had from her before that was a single comment in an email. And so we're new to each other and trying to get to know each other and and establish relationships. So at first, you know, she was right talking only about stuttering. In the course of the conversation, as we built that rapport, and she was able to talk more. (laughs) And when people allow themselves to share their story and to talk more, then they tend to open the door a little wider and a little wider and a little wider. And they keep looking at you almost as a confirmation that they're being understood, that it's being accepted, that it's valued, that it's not being judged negatively, but rather received positively. Then the next thing she told me was, well, he also has sensory deficits. Then she told me his ADHD. Then she told me he's recently been diagnosed with autism. Where at the beginning of the conversation, if I had just run with, or she and I together had run with, it's all about stuttering, everything else is fine, we would maybe never have gotten, except maybe in a formal assessment, and this was a consultation, to her other worries. 
And so it's that deep listening, as we talked about in the first of our counseling series, where we even are reminding ourselves not to impose our interpretation until we know more. And I like to think of it as sort of a puzzle or a mystery where I'm really trying to hear a story that's being totally offered by someone else from their point of view, almost like changing chairs or scenes um, or perspectives, even though the commonality is is what the parent is sharing about, about their child. That's really lovely. And some listeners might be thinking about their individual settings and what kind of access they have to parents and when that occurs. And so some of this might be more relevant in you, you, your assessment so, so sort of practices. And then while, while others might be the first line of communication for families too. I know for me clinically, I'd like to have a phone call or, or a vi- vi- video call that, that is a consultation. So it's, it's not just a a quick 10-minute call, but it's not a full-blown evaluation or assessment yet. And I, I acknowledge I have the flexibility there in, in making that decision. And so one line that I straddle a little bit is what fits with the consultation versus what might be more for a longer assessment sh- should we decide to go that route. But when parents feel validated in sharing their full story, there is this immediate trust and wow, I have told what maybe others have stopped and kind of given content to at a given point in time, or I haven't had someone to share that full story with. So that trust then is there. And then I love how, and you're you're really an expert in asking just the right question, whereas I feel like mine are always so wordy and, and maybe just not quite right there. That's something that I'm working on clinically. So a- after that piece of, of sharing some of the story. And, I, and we have this clinician nudge in us to want to give content and information. I am also curious, and I know that we've talked about this in, in past episodes and just within our conversations about walking that fine line also of not too much content or information giving thrust at someone. We, we don't want to overwhelm parents. And you know some information might be helpful versus certain point in time that it might kind of pile up in their worry pile a li- li- little bit more or, or amplify those worries. Yeah. And I think all of that is really important. And, and you know, I likewise am anxious to share, to help, to give them information that will hopefully make them feel better or help them with next steps. And all that is part of the process. But as you said, we don't want to overwhelm or give too much information. I often will ask a question and as I'm asking it, reword it <laughs> till I get it to the essence of, of what I'm really uh, trying to ask. When I watch my consultations later, I often think, oh, I could have asked that more clearly, but that's part of the learning process, I guess. So I'm someone who really likes to take notes. And probably a big reason for that is I have a lousy short-term memory, but also it allows me to then have something to refer to. And I can glance at it and maybe highlight or just notice some of the questions that they've asked, some of the themes that came up more in their sharing of their story, 
some of that I'm looking at to be able to follow up and ask for more information, get some more clarification. But some of it is to then reiterate and I'll say, thank you so much for sharing. Now I know much more about what this has been like for your child and for you and what's happened since it first began and some of your concerns. Now I might mention some of those that they've expressed or I might simply say of everything you've shared and the questions that you've asked, what would you like to talk about in a little bit more detail or want me to answer for you? And then that way it's again, what's top of mind for you? Sometimes they are on their lunch break or at some point right before the kids come home from school or early in the morning before they head out or whatever that might be. And they have a limited amount of time. My time usually isn't as closely booked. So they might need to take advantage of the 30 minutes they scheduled or the 15 minutes even. And so that gives them an opportunity to say, well, you know, sort of what's what I'm most curious about or, or what I most want to know is. And so by giving that back over to them to select, then we can really hone in on what's of most concern at that moment. And always at the end of the conversation, you might schedule another time to talk. You might schedule a screening and assessment. You might say, call me if you have any other further questions. And just sort of the conversation guides that. When you're you you you're speaking with a family and there might be some I don't want to say alarm bells, that seems a little bit extreme, but maybe there are some things that parents are doing that are just not so helpful in supporting, interacting, or communicating about stuttering or just with their child who stutters. Is this initial call a time where we can gently suggest or or ask some questions related to how we can be helpful versus maybe things that might not be? How do we do that without making parents feel bad? Or I, I think that that's often a line that I dance and and questions my students have or any any clinicians that I'm meeting with to speak to. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yes, I love that question. So usually the way I initiate that is to say, what types of things have you been doing or not doing to try to help? Or I might ask, you know, what advice have you been given and may be following? Could be from the pediatrician, could be from online. So many people are online and looking for information, even on their phones if they don't have other technology. And uh, it can be overwhelming and confusing, but they might try to do some of the things that they've learned. Some of the things that they often say that we would immediately think might be less helpful. Well, so I tell them to stop and start over or take his time or think about what he's saying or slow down, all those kinds of things. So I will, of course, listen to that. And I'm thinking, okay, we may want to address those. So the first thing I might say, and they might say, are those the right things to do? Or I don't know what else to do. Or they may say them very definitively. So that's what I do. And it helps. And I might say, well, you know what? You're actually quite wise because you are tuning into the fact that stuttering is all about time and tension. And so when your child is really excited and has a whole lot to say, then they're talking faster and they might not take a breath. And they're often stuttering more because they have a lot to say 
And all the responsibility is on their shoulders to communicate it. Because until they share it, you don't know what it is they're so excited about. So it's a natural tendency when you notice they're rushing and they're saying a whole lot and that excitement level is high to want to bring all that down. And you've noticed at other times when they're saying less, when they're more calm or quiet or whatever, relaxed, not rushed, that you may not hear as much stuttering. And I might stop there and say, is that true for your child? Because they might say yes, more often than not, they do. Sometimes they'll say, no, it seems to be pretty consistent across settings. And then I'll say, your child is three, or your child is four. Right now, he or she is learning so many different things. And there are so many processes going on underneath the hood, in the brain, in the body, and elsewhere that are all coming together. They're learning tons of vocabulary and sentence structure and social interaction and how to respond and turn-taking, which is hard for children in general. And they're developing their speech motor skills and all those skills and abilities at the same time. And they don't all to develop at the same rate. So they have so much already that they're trying to negotiate from thought to speed that when we add advice like slow down, take a deep breath, take your time, etc., it adds yet another thing that they need to think about and try to do and add to the equation. On top of that, if someone says to you, slow down, and you're speaking, Do you really know exactly how to do that and what to do and what that means? And then if the model, an adult model, doesn't necessarily show how to do that, then children often don't know what to do with that. And parents usually, like a light bulb goes off, like, oh, that makes sense. It's overload. And I'll say, well, you said that in one word, and I said it in 2000. So exactly. So you're noticing that that's great. That's perceptive. Instead of instructing, there are some other things we could do. And we could talk about good nonverbals, eye contact, maybe putting a hand on the child, getting down to their level. And But we also talk about if you can do it at that moment, because sometimes <laughs> you just can't stop. You have to get the kids to school now. <laughs> We're already running a little late. And feel free to say, hold that thought. I can't wait to hear that story. Once we're all in the van and strapped in and ready to go, then let's talk about that. So back to the original question, asking about what they're doing. And sometimes you might even want to ask about the rationale or have you noticed that that's helpful? When is it helpful? Is there any time when it's less helpful? Because that also gives you an in to saying, this may be why. So they might say, well, I noticed that if I ask him to say it again, it comes out smoothly. And I'll say, yes, we know that about stuttering. One of the reasons that might happen is that the first time you say it, it's all new, you're putting it all together and you're putting it out there. Where when you say it the second time, you've already prepared it, said it, and it does tend to be much easier. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I, as I was listening, I was thinking that I'm not sure if it's the Philly in me or not, but I have a hard time holding back some things that I feel 
you know, in terms of messaging for for children could be, I mean, for some kids, they, they don't have a level of awareness or depth or aren't connecting dots per se, but for others, they are actually pretty tuned in to what their caregivers or, or who, who, whomever in their, their lives are asking them to do or not do. And, and so I, I tend to want to dive in and just maybe also pepper in the idea that whatever ends up happening in, in, in relation to stuttering or communication, how important it is that children feel and, 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 and continue to grow in their confidence as communicators. And so doing what we can as a support system. And, and that usually is my prompt to say, I wonder what, what might be helpful to, to continue to grow and support your child's confidence in communication. I tend to use that segue rather than saying, well, <laughs> stop telling them the these unhelpful antidotal advice, which is actually just sending this message that all lanes are leading to, I guess I shouldn't do that with mom or dad or whomever. So kind of shifting the, the train track on over to why don't we take a moment to brainstorm some things that might help support that confidence and communication growth, how, how, how they can feel the most comfortable that might be jumping a couple steps though I'm as I'm saying that out loud for for some parents because they don't know yet information wise how they should or shouldn't think about stuttering and the trajectory of it at the same time so I as I'm talking that out loud I'm realizing that too well I, I think it was really beautifully said because that is where we want parents to get it's where we want the children to be whether stuttering is their short term or long term so you're really thinking about, the goal and how to help the parents start to envision that, understand it, and pursue it. I think one of the ways that I sometimes do that is by the advice to focus on content and message rather than manner, rather than whether it's stuttered or not. So I'll often say things like, something that's really important to do is to really listen. And you're going to notice the stuttering. And you may have to remind yourself to breathe and not focus on that. And one way to help you to do that is to think to yourself, okay, when he finishes talking, I'm going to be able to follow up on what he was talking about and what he shared and compliment that. I'm going to make it about the message. I'm going to make it about the content. And sometimes I'll joke, have you ever had someone and you were talking to them and they were kind of looking at you quizzically and you're thinking you're really not listening. And then they say, did you change your hairstyle? Is that lipstick a little bit different? And you think, oh, you weren't listening to me. You were thinking about something else. Well, stuttering is kind of like that. If we're thinking about the stuttering, we could completely miss the message or the content. And what's most important about communication? The content. And what will help your child have confidence that his message is being heard, received, understood, which will welcome and encourage more communication than focusing on that. And most parents tell me that at least most of the time that helps them to be less focused on, concerned about, worried about the stuttering. Yes. As we were talking, a little light bulb flashed in my head and I'm remembering and for my graduate students that I teach, we will talk and if anyone is listening, this is always on the final exam. <laughs> um, 
to understand also when parents are asking about what they should or shouldn't do or things that are helpful or not helpful, that underneath the hood for them, or many times at least, there is this potential parent underlying guilt, worry, whether it's there yet, or they have that consideration that it could have been because of something they did or didn't do. And so students, listen up. <laughs> We're, you're listening to what parents are asking, but then also considering what the deeper ask could be that you could speak to and, and just clarify and confirm with parents that, of course, it's nothing that that you did that, that caused stuttering. And usually then they can kind of tune in then to, okay, so let's talk and brainstorm. Usually they want to start with what shouldn't I do or what are some listener don'ts? And it's hard to not go down that rabbit hole and to actually shift gears and to say, well, let's actually think through a little bit about what would best support your child and their communication or their confidence and brainstorm some of those. And then you naturally cross off some of those don'ts along the way. And then there are other times where you might have to get a little Philly and, and be a little bit more explicit. But I think taking that initial opportunity to brainstorm and elicit rather than just dive in and take that like first opening that you see. That's something I'm continually working on as a clinician, especially when we don't have a ton of time. You're right. Sometimes they're calling during lunchtime or I don't know. Everything that we are doing these days seems to be overscheduled and rushed, myself included. <laughs> yes. And I think that everything that you said there really focuses on, okay, what is this person concerned about wanting help with needing right now in the short time that we have? And when you are allowing, even in five minutes, them to share, because five minutes is a whole lot of talking and sharing, then they have begun to allow you in to give you the deeper picture so that you can help them. Reaching out by email or telephone or whatever is already a step into the unknown for them. I can't just let this go. I need help. I'm going to reach out. So they've already reached out to you. So the trust has already started to build. And then as they tell their story, then that opens up even further. And then as you and I are talking, we're talking in the hypothetical and we're thinking about many different parents and many different concerns and needs and worries and kids and what's going on and those sorts of things. But you then gauge that, okay, is this somebody who basically has very straightforward questions, wants them answered, can handle that just back and forth information, giving and receiving that's focused on where they are? and they move on? Or is this a parent for whom they may be crying? They may be, in that guilt sense, beating themselves up about it. Sometimes parents will say, I feel so guilty, even though I know it wasn't me. But still, parental guilt is just a thing. As clinicians, we can just acknowledge that you know, and say, it's because how much you love and care for your child, and you would do anything to help them. And I sometimes think that parents wish that they were the cause because if they were, then they could do something about it, right? So, you know, acknowledging those emotions. And then if they're really upset, say, this is really upsetting. Your child is communicating e easily and then out of the blue. And some children are then shutting down or communicating less or getting upset about it, showing frustration. And so you're acknowledging those emotions. It's the empathy versus the sympathy response. 
And when you do that, then they share more and that trust builds more. And then you're able to hone in on, all right, when is the right time to give them what information? I had a question yesterday when I was teaching in in a graduate course and the student said, well, is it okay to give parents information? Or do I need to be counseling? And I said, great question. Think about it this way. Information is the content. Counseling is the delivery. And the way that people are able to receive information is based on the way you deliver it. And that's counseling because that's about relationship and really trying to understand that person, your client's point of view. I'm so glad that you brought that example up because my students too will say, okay, well, I did the counseling and then, and, and it's so good actually when someone can verbalize that so that we can talk about it and understand that it's more of a lens in which you're listening and guiding and communicating, not a, an on off switch like we, we all know. And you said so. <laughs> So beautifully. Well, thank you, Sarah. As in many of our podcasts, as as we talk, I always love after I blab on about something, how you can cut right to the essence of it and say it succinctly and beautifully. Thank you. <laughs> you do the same, and and I think that that that's just what 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 one does to tag team, and <laughs> I I hope it's helpful because in my brain. I'm always trying to pull pieces and the most important elements and highlights and reiterate them to myself as my way of solidifying. So that just might be my own self-coping mechanism coming out into light and conversation. (laughs) So what I'm hearing is, and I think that that's a good clinical skill too, because if you're asking for confirmation, you're asking permission or, or you're giving permission, excuse me, for more clarification or more details. I think that that's a skill that you you can you all can practice not outside of clinical sessions too try having a conversation with a friend i've i've tried this with 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 one of my best friends and usually we're talking over each other and we're giving each other advice and we're just kind of giving it right as as we we would need to hear it and a lot of times i i will um, ask for clarification or confirmation and i think that you'll be amazed at how many more details or how much more open someone will get. So just a plug there if you're looking for opportunities to practice. I think that is such a perfect aspect of the whole clinical relationship and human relationships. So these are things that you do with other people or can also do with people in your lives that will enhance your relationship. Deep active listening is not passive. It's never passive. It's one of the hardest things to do, even though people assume it's a not doing. And by trying these things out and you see the way people warm to them and share more and are able to be more vulnerable. And when you know people well, you can take that all different directions and talk at the same time and and you could, because you know what they need and how they might receive it. When our clients are new to us, or like these consultations are, are typically the first time I've ever met someone, then, you know, there's that sort of feeling out and they have already made themselves vulnerable. And that's part of it because we are in a relationship where we have an expertise and they want to tap into that. And I love that idea of reiterating some of what they've shared and seeing 
if you got it right. And uh, students in particular tend to be very afraid of saying the wrong thing or getting a fact wrong. I can model that beautifully, but it gives parents an opportunity to say, because I'll say, did I, I don't think that's quite right. Um, did I get that right? And they can say, oh, well, no, it's this. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say, we're human too. And they can clarify and help us. And that makes that gives them or supports their expertise. And just sharing another way that, that sometimes I do that. Note, note taking is incredibly important for a lot of reasons, but utilizing some of my note taking as opportunities to reread something that I want to highlight back to the client. I can simply just reread. Oh, okay. So you said. And I, I'll just reread an excerpt there. I don't go through the entire two pages, but something that maybe I want to clarify or I want to probe a little deeper. So just sharing that that opportunity. That makes sense. And I think about when we teach students or, or anyone about interviewing and sometimes when they're new clinicians and they're just learning and it's totally natural, they might have a form with lots of questions on it that they're going to ask or that they've prepared in advance. And so when they try this open-ended asking for the story, then oftentimes a lot of those questions get answered. And sometimes the tendency is to sort of sit there until that's over and then go back and take the questions one at a time. So that note-taking allows you to do that. And it never hurts to say, thank you. You've shared a lot. All that was really important. I'm going to take a minute here, if you don't mind, to look over some of the questions that I had planned to ask to make sure we've covered them or to ask for more detail where I haven't gotten the full story. And that gives you the opportunity not to be redundant and to focus more and to get more information clarification or take the conversation in a direction focused on something that you think was particularly important. And that's all your clinical expertise in there. It also gives the parent a minute to breathe because mm -hmm. they've spilled, they've shared, and now they get to breathe. And sometimes during that moment, they'll think of something else too. Now that the emotional level, the worry, the anxiety, the trepidation of sharing and everything they've experienced has subsided a bit in that moment because of the conversation, then they're, they're able to reflect, breathe, and may share more. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I think it depends a little bit on the time that you have in whatever first interaction that you have with families. It's not going to be the exact amount of time that the previous time, or we won't have time for a, a full uh, story and case history and full form of every, of every different area or detail we'd like to cover at some point. What I usually do personally is I'll have a blank piece of paper in front of me where I'm going to take my notes during the, the conversation or session. And Given what our initial reach out has been or what I know so far and the time frame that we have together, I'll write down some key areas at the top as kind of like a checklist thing for myself or just general areas that I want to make sure that we leave some space for or to talk to. And they're really broad. I'm, I'm not spending much time here. This is just between sessions. I might say story, obviously making sure that I'm checking in with them with how do they want to use our time together? What What is it that's going to be most beneficial for them? And then some options. So 
some of those do's and don'ts are helpful versus not so helpful. Making sure I give them permission to talk about stuttering and to label stuttering. Maybe cover a little bit of those misconceptions that might be relevant at this age. And then to share a little bit, depending on how that goes, about what the next step might look like, whether it is with me or with someone else, and what kind of resources can I provide. I struggle sometimes with the wanting to give them a stuttering 101 overview and not really having the time to do that justice or wanting to do a stuttering therapy overview of what it looks like at this age. And sometimes I get stuck in the trees in that piece, which usually happens as a component related to, okay, what next? I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about that piece, Ellen, and I would love to pick your brain there. Yeah, and and that is can be challenging depending on things like time constraints or the complexity of what they've shared and what might be going on with a particular child. I love the way you prepare in advance. So you have cued yourself to some major themes or questions. And for me, when I have an email or a voicemail message is conveyed to me, then I look at that information and I immediately think about things I want to know more about. So jotting those down. And I usually have the inquiry up on my computer screen. So I have the name and I have the information they reached out with as a starting place and then fill it in. So I I think that's, that's really great. And, you know, I think that we often want to have them get off the consult feeling very comfortable that they know it all or a whole way more than they walked in with. And I think that's a natural tendency for the because we want to help and we want to get them where they need to go. Just thinking about the consultations I've I've done so far, it's interesting. They last anywhere from 15 minutes is about the shortest to the longest one I've done with a parent of a preschooler so far was two hours. And that was a parent who had chronicled in writing every all day every day since the child had begun to stutter three months previous and wanted to essentially tell me every page and i had a i let that go for a little while before i um said okay thank you i'm really starting to see a pattern here i clearly can envision what you've been experiencing and what your child has been experiencing and then moved it forward because I thought we could be here for two weeks going through this and and also thinking for this mom, this was something she really felt she needed to do for herself in her way of helping her child, but also thinking to help her to be able to distance from that constant recording of every time he stuttered and worrying about that and that focus and not moving it toward communication and confidence, as you said earlier. So as I said earlier, sometimes it's it's really when you talking with a particular person, then you get a clue as to what's really important right now. It also doesn't hurt to watch the time a little bit. And if you know you have to go in five minutes to say, I'm so glad you reached out. I really learned a lot more. We have five minutes left. We can schedule another consultation or next steps. 
I can email you because sometimes you can do that decision making process in that way, or they can leave you a message or whatever might work. In the la- in the five minutes that we have left, what would you most want to cover before we end? And that not only focuses in on let's let's focus on what you need, but it also says, I trust that you're going to be okay. And that's an important message to give people that you don't need everything in the kitchen sink for me to be okay. It's not about my helping, even though that's what I want to do. It's about giving you enough so that you feel confident where you are, and then we can take next steps. Or I can refer you to someone who, given what I've learned from you, would be a good fit to help you further. Not so important to think about. I love that. Do you feel like there's anything that we still should talk about along the lines of this topic? I think there's so much we could cover. The one the one topic that often comes up, and, and I think the clinicians also worry about a little bit with especially young children who are stuttering, is making stuttering speakable. And you mentioned using the word stuttering and feeling comfortable with that. Parents often don't know how to make it speakable, how to respond to it. And there might be two things related to that. One, if they think that their child is unaware And the child might be. I find more often than not, children know it's happening and realize it and and are very aware of other people's responses to it, but may not have articulated it. Some children articulate it very quickly. So parents are just thinking they don't know or aren't aware of it or hoping maybe when that's not the case. Or um, sometimes they just don't know what words to say or how to respond. So I think that technique of noticing when the child might be struggling a little bit more, uh, certainly not every time they stutter because we're going to focus on getting that message, but if it's taking longer and they might even stop to breathe or look a little frustrated, you know, you know your child best, you'll know when they're having those feelings, you could respond by saying, you know, oh, buddy, that was hard to say, wasn't it? But I love the way you hung in there because now I know you wanted to share whatever that might be. And then also that skin knee analogy can be so helpful when your child skins their knee. If you go hysterical, then every time they get a boo-boo, they might do the same. And if you dismiss it, like it doesn't matter, then you're basically telling them you don't have a right to your feelings and you're not supposed to be upset or come to me when you skin your knee. But instead you say, oh, let me take a look there, honey. Oh, you skinned your knee. Let's go clean it up, put a Band-Aid on it, kiss the boo-boo back to play. With stuttering, you can do the same thing. Acknowledge that it's frustrating to have difficulty getting your words out. Or it was really hard. You had a um, little more stuttering there. You couldn't get that word out. And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? And then put it back over to them so they can say, ah, oh, why does that happen? Or, or yeah, it's hard to talk sometimes. And that opens a conversation, makes it speakable, like so many other things that you naturally talk to your child about. Yeah, everything that you said, and then in maybe one or two pieces to add on would be to to watch how often you're commenting or acknowledging because what you maybe by by not sometimes after you've already established that it's okay that our our words get stuck sometimes as we're learning to talk 
and labeling it as stuttering. I really am a big believer in that early on, demystifying or destigmatizing that term. And that sometimes we're going to be a little more stuttery with our words. And and what's really important is that you feel comfortable saying everything that you have to say to me. And, and, and I'll always be here to listen. But then also just even listening then sometimes when they're especially stuttery and not needing to comment sends that message that they're allowed to stutter that much and talk to you. So what, what we do unspoken as support, I think, of course, after acknowledging and, and after demystifying what might be happening and they don't have the words yet to, to understand or explore what's going on. And then know your child, meet them where they are. You know, some kids, that's enough to just acknowledge it, give it, a, give it a label. We don't need to assume that there's a whole huge depth there just yet. But but there there might be some worries creeping in or some acknowledgement or frustration that our words feel stuck or that the way I'm talking is a little bit different than how so-and-so is talking. So yes, I'm so glad that we remembered to, to carve out some space to give parents here permission to talk about talking and to talk about stuttering. I'm really glad that you thought about, yes, it's good to acknowledge, to label it, et cetera. It's more important in general to focus on the communication and build that confidence and, and to wait and listen and then acknowledge the content and make that the most important thing. And, you know, it's always that when and how, but I find that most parents have a good feel for what their child needs when. And if they try it and they think, oh, that's the wrong time, then they'll know. Oh, well. (laughs) And you learn. Yeah, giving ourselves some flexibility there. Great. Well, Ellen, we could talk all day probably about this topic. (laughs) I know it's near and dear to your heart. And so I just want to thank you again for, for agreeing to hit record during conversations we'd already have and maybe some that are sparked by an an email or a question or submission. So thank you for all your wisdom and what you shared today with all of us. It's always so much fun, Sarah, and it's always a great learning opportunity as well to be able to share clinically and think more about and more in depth and from some other perspectives that each of us brings to the conversation and look forward to talking more in season six next year. I know. I can't believe it. We'll have one more episode though this season still, which is in the works. But one more plug before we hang up, I will link my email in the description. I will also link Ellen's Ask the Stuttering Foundation email there too. And if you have any clinical questions or topics or suggestions, we really do welcome that. Sometimes episodes are sparked and inspired by something that someone sends over, even if you know they didn't really think that their note would would inspire it. It does. Well, thank you all. Thanks for hanging in. This is a little bit longer of an episode, but I think really fitting given how important it is, that initial reach out. So thank you listeners for being with us. And I will see you for the last episode of season five coming up next month. Bye. Bye.